Eight letter bombs sent into the United States last week appear to have been mailed from the Middle East. FBI expert says that it is too early to jump to conclusions, but then added, it's Richard Jewell. <laughs> In Atlanta this week, two separate bomb blasts rocked a building which houses an abortion clinic, asked if there were any suspects. FBI spokesman said, quote, we don't want to rush to judgment like we did in the Olympic Park bombing case, but then added, it's Richard Jewell. <laughs> the terrorist bomb which exploded at the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta may have claimed more than one victim. Shortly after the incident, the FBI falsely accused Atlanta security guard Richard Jewell of the crime then waited nearly a year to publicly clear his name. With us tonight to discuss his ordeal is Richard Jewell. Richard, thanks for coming on Weekend Update. My pleasure, Norm. Now, now, Richard, I should point out that it is uh, pretty unusual for Tom Brokaw to make a mistake. I mean, uh, nearly three quarters of the time, like 60, 70% of the time, his stories are accurate. I understand that. Yeah, but you're telling us, though, that this just happened to be one of those one in three or maybe one in 2.7 times that he got it wrong? Well, I guess I just got to believe you. I didn't do it, Norm. I see. So in other words, here you got Tom Brokaw. He does 100 stories a week, 53 of which are basically accurate. <laughs> Only 47 containing major errors of fact. And you... Just have the unbelievably bad luck, you're telling us, to be one of the 47. Yes, I guess so. Well, I guess anything's possible. All right, Richard, let's change the subject. Now, less than a month ago, the world was stunned by the auto accident that took the life of Princess Diana. Yes, and the, uh, the other two people also, yeah. Two other people? Oh, you seem to know a lot about the accident there, Richard. <laughs> Another bizarre coincidence, or uh... no? I just read the papers. Ah, uh, you read the papers. Huh? Did you read the papers, perhaps in France? You ever been to France, Richard? No, not no. I've never been to never been, been to, to France. France. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've never been to France. The way you're stuttering there. Yeah, I'd like to check your passport. Were you, Richard Jewell, in any way involved in the death of Mother Teresa? No, Norm, I was not. Well, all right, Richard. If you say that, I'm going to have to believe you. Richard Jewell, everyone. Ah, he did it. He killed her. I was looking him right in the eye. I could tell. Killed her in cold blood. CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar-warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, welcoming you to 2020 with the first DHP episode of Current Year. I hope you had a good New Year's celebration if you're into that sort of thing, and an excellent Saturnalia and or Festivus or whatever else as well. 
For my part, unfortunately, I started to get rather sick on Christmas Day, and I'm still not 100% over it over a week later, as you may hear in my voice. This is one of those ones where, you know how there's a lot of different levels of getting a cold, and some of them are just slightly annoying, and, you know, super easy, barely an inconvenience, and then it rages to things that have you almost bedridden. Well, I wasn't quite bedridden from this one, but I was damn near close for a while. It's one of those extra-strength colds that in my mind deserves to be called, not a cold, but a respiratory infection. So anyway, that was enough to knock me on my ass for a good chunk of Christmas break in the holiday season, but I seem to be knock on wood slowly getting over it. Some of it's lingering, but we'll see. Anyway, but um, speaking of this new current year, Maybe this will be the year of hindsight. After all, it's 2020. Maybe this is the year when people start actually trying to learn the lessons that history has to teach us. So since this show is all about trying to have as 2020-ish of hindsight as we can, maybe that means this is the year the Dangerous History Podcast will go from being modestly successful to taking off to being whatever is the next level, to become one of the biggest podcasts around, enabling me to do this full-time and crank out even more quantity without sacrificing quality in any way? Could that be this year? Maybe, just maybe, we'll see. I'll definitely be doing my part to try to make that happen, and I hope you'll do what you can to help me. Now that clip you heard before the intro music was from Saturday Night Live, from, I believe, 1996 and 7 time frame. Back when SNL was still pretty fucking hilarious a lot of the time. And that clip comes from YouTube. It's a hodgepodge of cuts from several different episodes of Norm MacDonald's Weekend Update, back when Weekend Update was still fucking hilarious. And so, there are some clips, first of Norm making Richard Jewell jokes, and then at the end, there he actually has Jewell himself on. I'll, of course, put a link to the YouTube compilation in question so you can watch the whole thing, and I'll link to a bunch of other things to watch and read related to the Richard Jewell story as well, because, of course, this is the focus of our episode today, a DHP movie review that I haven't done in a while. I haven't done a DHP movie review in a while, I don't think. This one on the 2019 film Richard Jewell. Oh, and by the way, before I leave this topic, let me just mention Norm MacDonald really, when you look back at some of the clips of him doing Weekend Update on SNL, really makes you appreciate him. He was the complete opposite of today's SNL and today's Weekend Update. Norm was edgy and unpredictable, a loose cannon, politically incorrect. He would actually call bullshit on the establishment and point out the media's lies and faults and all that. Whereas so much of SNL today, including Weekend Update, is so like lazy just lazy pro-establishment, like, oh, isn't Trump a jerk? Like, it's just so predictable and boring. I mean, back in the day, Norm MacDonald, aside from blatantly and hilariously pointing out how the media and the government fucked over Richard Jewell, he would also do things like basically call Bill Clinton a rapist, I think, if I remember right. And certainly I can remember him calling the Clintons' murderers for killing Vince Foster and other things like that. It was just so awesome that that was on such a mainstream network show 25 years ago. But one more thing before we get into the film and the history and the controversy related to it, I want to let you all know that I recently published the next lecture in my Dangerous History Lyceum course, Rise of the American Empire. And in this lecture, I dig into the first great victory of the U.S. Empire as an independent entity 
separate from the British Empire. Namely, I cover how the U.S. was able to grab the region between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River at the end of the Revolutionary War, a region that, in terms of land area, was much larger than just the original 13 states themselves. And this was a region in which almost no Americans actually lived at the time, but they got title to it at the bargaining table nonetheless. So here's a quick snippet from that lecture for you to get a taste of the course. So for this lecture, we're going to drop the needle on the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the War of Independence and cover the extremely unlikely story of how the American representatives at the conference managed to get their hands on the massive piece of territory known as Trans-Appalachia, meaning the land in between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. Of course, we won't really be dropping the needle just on the conference because in order for things to make sense, we have to discuss a little bit about the background leading up to it, some of which goes back to before the American Revolution even really got rolling. So let's begin. On October 19, 1781, British General Lord Cornwallis surrendered a bit over 7,000 redcoats to a combined French and American force, which had almost as many French as American soldiers in it at the time led by George Washington, ending the siege of Yorktown. This was the last major military action of the American War of Independence. And when Parliament got the news, they voted to cut off funding for the war and got much more serious about peace negotiations. Still, it would be a while, even before a so-called preliminary treaty was signed between the Americans and British. It actually wouldn't take place until November of 1782, and the full treaty wouldn't be finalized until September of 1783, which is when France and Spain, who had joined the conflict against the British, also made peace with the British government. Now, at this point in time, as of the surrender at Yorktown, the only remaining large British troop presences in American territory were in New York City itself, in Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, plus some forts up by the Great Lakes. But regarding that vast piece of territory between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, almost no quote-unquote Americans lived west of the mountains. So, a reasonable person would expect that the territory of the new independent United States would likely end up having a western boundary somewhere along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains, or perhaps containing only a little bit of territory west of the mountains. But in this case, a reasonable person would be wrong. Instead, the American negotiating team at the Paris Peace Conference, consisting of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay, would manage to get their hands on Trans-Appalachia, this giant piece of territory between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. A territory, by the way, in which there still wouldn't be a significant American population in most of those areas for a generation or two. As Walter Nugent points out regarding this territory, quote, Given the lack of an American military or demographic presence, they got much more than they deserved. End quote. So if you're interested in hearing the rest of that lecture as well as the previous one and all future ones to come, please go on over to either Patreon or Subscribestar and sign up to support my work on the Dangerous History Podcast at the level of 15 bucks per month or higher. 
And if you're already a supporter of the DHP through either of those platforms at a lower level, and you want to access my Dangerous History Lyceum lessons, then please consider upping your pledge. Again, to at least the $15 per month level. And if you do that, you'll retain all the benefits you already have of a lower level of support, plus you'll get access to the DHL material. And thanks. Now, let's talk a bit about kind of the basic Cliff Notes version of the whole Atlanta bombing and Richard Jewell story. Of course, plot spoiler warnings, if you're absolutely clueless about this story and you don't want the movie to be spoiled, even though it's not exactly like it's a mystery movie or an M. Night Shyamalan film where plot spoilers will really ruin it, but whatever, be forewarned. So, the basics of the Atlanta bombing Richard Jewell story. In 1996, the Summer Olympics were being held in Atlanta, Georgia, and on July 27th, during a concert at the Centennial Olympic Park, a security guard named Richard Jewell discovered a suspicious military surplus Alice pack under a bench next to a TV news tower, and Jewell alerted police. Jewell, as well as other security and police officers, started to try to evacuate the area, and bomb squad technicians were brought in to check it out. They discovered that in the pack were several pipe bombs surrounded by nails. Meanwhile, someone made a phone call from a payphone a little ways off from the park, warning about a bomb that would go off soon. Back at the park, the bomb detonated before everyone was fully evacuated from the vicinity. A 44-year-old woman was killed by being hit with one of the nails from the bomb in the head, and one Turkish cameraman died soon after the blast of a heart attack that was caused by him running either to or from the scene. I'm not sure which way he was going. And in addition to that, another 111 people suffered various degrees of injuries. Of course, the toll of deaths and injuries would have probably been much, much worse if not for Jewel discovering the bomb and getting the evacuation started. And if not for the fact that the backpack had actually been tipped over, it was a directional charge designed to maximize nails hitting people. And the backpack had been sort of tipped over, and this ended up reducing just how many of the nails actually went into the people nearby. In the immediate aftermath of the event, Richard Jewell was portrayed as a hero who saved many, many lives. But it didn't take long for the FBI to start looking into him as possibly being the bomber. This apparently was to a large extent based on this lone bomber profile that the FBI had, where they kind of said, well, He's a middle-aged, overweight white man who lives with his mother, and he's like a giant wannabe law enforcement hero, sort of frustrated guy who wants to be a cop. And so he probably planted the bomb so that he could then save the day and make himself a hero. Another part of the reason that the FBI started to look into Jewel was that the president of Piedmont College where Jewel had previously worked as a campus security guard and where he'd been, I think, either fired or forced to resign, you know, six or one, half a dozen or the other, for supposedly being overzealous both on and off campus. The president of that college had contacted law enforcement after the bombing in order to kind of snitch and share his suspicions and concerns that he thought Jewel might be the bomber. By the way, among the things Jewel had gotten in trouble for when he was a campus security guard at the college was he had started pulling people over and writing tickets for people off campus, which he had no authority to do. And I think as part of that whole thing, he had actually been arrested for impersonating a police officer, something like that. Somehow, 
the story that the FBI was starting to look into Jewell as possibly being the bomber was leaked prematurely to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Kathy Scruggs, who began running with the story full steam, and the rest of the media started piling on very fast. Now, even though Jewell was never officially called the suspect or arrested, he did, for a number of months, have his life virtually destroyed, or at the very least turned upside down, both he and his mother, and they had to deal with all sorts of mistreatment and violations of rights and privacy and so forth from both the media and the government. The FBI, for its part, acted dishonestly and borderline criminally at several points in their investigation of Jewel. For example, at one point, they tried to trick him into being interrogated by them and waiving his rights and tricked him by saying, by luring him in under false pretenses, basically still acting like they thought he was a hero. This is before they made it clear that he was now a suspect. And they lured him into an interrogation under the ruse that they still thought he was a hero and they wanted him to help them make a training film. And as part of this, they wanted him to pretend to read a statement where he's waiving his rights, his Miranda rights. So they're doing this shady, dishonest stuff. The whole training video ruse was complete BS. They were trying to take advantage of the fact that Jewel worshipped law enforcement and was kind of naive, and he also seems not to have been the brightest bulb in the hardware store. But even so, he eventually kind of realized what was happening and stopped going along with them. Jewel's lawyer, a man named Watson Bryant, was someone Jewel had made friends with about a decade ago when they both worked in the same office building. Bryant was, of course, a lawyer there, and Jewel was some kind of like mailroom, kind of low-level office worker type guy. Jewel had actually tried to get in touch with Bryant shortly after the bombing, before the FBI began to investigate him, because Jewel had gotten an offer for a book deal, and he needed a lawyer to deal with the contract, and so he had reached out to Bryant for that, and the next thing you know, the FBI's going after him. But Luckily for Jewel, once the FBI started investigating him as being possibly the bomber, Bryant was able to help him out with that as well. Over the next several weeks, Jewel was constantly hounded by the media and investigated by the FBI, who, if anything, kept ratcheting things up despite not finding much. They searched his home. I think they actually might have searched his home more than once, the home that he lived in with his mother at the time. They confiscated a bunch of his and his mother's possessions and they surveilled him everywhere he went. And when it was proven that Jewel could not have made the warning phone call from the payphone and made it back to the bomb site before the bomb went off, the FBI just kept running and said, well, we think he obviously had an accomplice, and they started to dig into one of Jewel's friends as a possible bombing accomplice, and also they threw this in a homosexual lover, neither of which were true, by the way. Despite their shady tactics, and their aggressive investigation, the FBI was unable to produce any solid evidence linking either Jewel or his friend to the crime, and when Jewel eventually passed a polygraph, and a few other things started to happen, the FBI finally decided to back off. In October 1996, the U.S. attorney in charge of the investigation sent a letter officially clearing Jewel of suspicion of any wrongdoing or complicity in the bombing. In July of 1997, when someone asked about the matter at a press conference, then-Attorney General Janet Reno actually said that the Justice Department owed Jewel an apology for the leak to the press and how it all went down. 
I mean, if the butcher of Waco is actually apologizing for the FBI's treatment of you, then something clearly shady happened. In the years following all this, Jewell brought a number of lawsuits against different people and institutions for defamation, including against Piedmont College, NBC, and the New York Post that ended with out-of-court settlements for Jewell, as well as against the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. This one, the AJC ultimately won in the Georgia Court of Appeals in 2011, four years after Jewell's death, by the way. And the reason that the AJC won this case, the court said, was that technically the story, basically that the FBI was investigating Jewell as possibly being the bomber, technically was true at the time it was published, so it couldn't be the basis for a defamation suit. So you're in this shady area, right, where I guess, you know, the AJC's reporting never officially said, oh yes, he is the bomber, he did it. But, you know, they're using kind of the innuendo and the implication and the wink-wink, nudge-nudge, and the court felt like, well, that's not enough for a defamation suit. Because technically it was true that at the time they were looking into Jewell for possibly being the bomber. Richard Jewell died in 2007 at the age of 44 due to medical problems caused by obesity and diabetes. Meanwhile, the real culprit behind the bombing was eventually discovered to be a guy named Eric Rudolph, who was a right-wing nut job who was behind a string of bombings in the 90s, and who expressed motives that kind of blended together a mixture of being opposed to abortion, homosexuality, and socialism. Busted in 2003, not by the FBI, but instead by a rookie local cop in North Carolina. And in 2005, he pleaded guilty to several bombings, including the 96 Atlanta bombing. So that's the quick version of the basic story. Now let's talk a bit about the film. The film was written by a screenwriter named Billy Ray. No, not Cyrus. No mullet here. Just Billy Ray. This is a screenwriter whose previous credits include a number of films such as The Color of Night in 1994, Hearts War in 2002, The Hunger Games in 2012, Captain Phillips in 2013, Gemini Man and Terminator Dark Fate, both 2019, as of course is the film Richard Jewell. Billy Ray has also done a little bit of directing, for example, the 2007 film Breach, which is about the American FBI agent Robert Hansen, who was convicted of being a spy for the Soviet Union and then later Russia in the United States. That film, Billy Ray co-wrote and also directed. I've not seen that film since it first came out, you know, over 10 years ago. I remember it being pretty good, though. Among the producers of Richard Jewell, in addition to Eastwood, who also directed it, and several other people are the actors Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill. Interestingly, according to the internet, originally, Jonah Hill was going to play Richard Jewell, and Leonardo DiCaprio was going to play his attorney, Watson Bryant. To be honest with you, I'm glad we ended up with the actors we did in those roles, because I think they did a better job than Hill and DiCaprio would have done in those particular roles. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about the cast, which I think is basically excellent. A bunch of good actors, all very fitted for the roles that they have. You've got Paul Walter Hauser as Richard Jewell. You've got Sam Rockwell as Watson Bryant, his attorney. You've got Kathy Bates as Bobby Jewell, Richard's mother. You've got John Hamm as the FBI agent 
Tom Shaw, who apparently is an amalgamation of several different FBI agents involved with the case. And then you have Olivia Wilde as the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter, Kathy Scruggs. Like I said, these are all very good actors who do a good job in the roles that they're in in this film, for sure. So a quick synopsis of the film, and I'm not going to get into too much nitty-gritty detail with this, both because I've already given you a summary of the bullet points of the real-life case, and also because you can and should go see the film if you're interested. The film begins about a decade before the bombing, showing the beginning of Jewel's friendship with Watson Bryant in the office building where they both worked at the time. Jewel is kind of a not-that-bright outcast sort of a character, and Bryant is basically the only person at the workplace there in the office who is nice to Jewel and doesn't make fun of him or treat him in a condescending or insulting way. After a while, Jewel tells Bryant that he's leaving to go work in law enforcement, and Bryant gives him a gift of $100 and says something like, it's given on the condition that once you become a cop, try not to turn into an asshole. We then later see that eh, Jewel kind of is an authority drunk asshole. We see him working as campus security at Piedmont College and being aggressive and overzealous with students and getting on the wrong side of the college president and basically getting himself fired. And one of the things I'll say about this film that I appreciate it is that it doesn't try to put too positive a spin on Richard Jewell as a character. You realize he is kind of a jerk uh, and in some ways kind of an idiot. You realize he's someone who's got this simplistic, naive view of law enforcement and that he wants to be this law enforcement hero and also that he does tend to kind of get drunk on power as soon as he has a little bit of it. So it's not like he's portrayed as just this, you know, completely perfect, wonderful guy. He's actually severely flawed. But then the point still is that he doesn't deserve what happens to him, despite his flaws. Anyway, we then catch up with Jewel a little bit later in his life, now living in an apartment with his mother Bobby, again played by the great Kathy Bates, in Atlanta, where Jewel is employed as a security guard during the Olympics. And then, of course, we get the depiction of the discovery and the explosion of the bomb. Then we see the top FBI people looking into this, including John Hamm's Agent Shaw, and they're having a meeting at which they start to play with this idea that since Jewel is a frustrated white male, yada yada yada, a failed wannabe cop, he fits the profile for a lone bomber, and so the FBI starts to look into him. Soon thereafter, Agent Shaw leaks this fact, the fact that the FBI is investigating Jewel for possibly being the bomber to Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Kathy Scruggs, who is portrayed in the film as being a woman of, let's say, kind of loose morals, who is willing to trade sex for a scoop, which the film basically says is what happens between her and Shaw. The sexual act is not depicted, but it is strongly implied. However, if I recall correctly, in their conversation, Scruggs says to Shaw that she won't publish anything about Jewel until she gets it verified by a second source. Despite those things, the next day, Scruggs goes ahead and runs with the story about Jewel anyway, and it becomes front-page news on the AJC, and then it does the 1990s version of going viral in the mainstream media, with even Tom Brokaw chiming in on the thing. It's at this point, I think, that the FBI in the film gets Jewel, who at this point hasn't yet even realized he's a suspect, to 
come into their office to talk using the training video ruse I mentioned earlier to try and trick him into waiving his rights. And it almost works, but then Jewel manages to figure out that this is shady, and he manages to get in touch with Bryant and basically get rescued from this. Bryant, by the way, is brilliantly portrayed by Sam Rockwell, who I always love, as being kind of a hard-nosed pro-civil liberties lawyer who's super skeptical of the government and law enforcement. At one point in the film, he's even shown in his office, and behind him is a poster that says something along the lines of, I fear the government more than I fear terrorists. Bryant is constantly urging Jewel to not be so naive and trusting and accommodating and bootlicking to the law enforcement agents who are trying to bust him. Jewel, for his part, is such a cop worshiper that he has a hard time standing up to the cops and the FBI agents at all, even when they're really mistreating him. And they, for their parts, are more than happy to repeatedly try to take advantage of Jewel's nature as being you know, naive and worshipful of law enforcement and authority on the one hand, and of being not the sharpest tool in the shed on the other. Well, from there, the movie basically chronicles the travails that Jewel and his mother go through, having their home searched and their stuff confiscated, being under constant surveillance of both the media and the FBI, being humiliated and violated in various ways, and all that until finally getting exonerated. The film ends with a scene set in 2005, where Jewel, now working as a police officer in a small town, is visited by Bryant, who tells him that the real bomber has confessed. So that's the basic synopsis of the film, and it's done very well. It's, you know, it's good storytelling, good tentacle filmmaking, all that kind of stuff. It's very entertaining. One of my yardsticks I use for these sorts of movies to see, like, you know, is it just entertaining or is it only interesting to me because I'm interested in this sort of history, is whenever I can see one of these movies with my wife, because she's not, you know, all deep into dark historical stuff the way I am. And so when we go see a movie like this, if she's drawn in and she's like, wow, that was a really good movie and blah, 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 then I know like, yeah, that was a good movie. It didn't just draw me in because... I'm drawn to these sorts of topics, you know, that it actually is just objectively a well-done movie. So I have mostly positive opinions of this film, but let's talk overall about the reception of the film and the controversy that has swirled around it a bit since it came out. As of this recording, the film holds a 74% positive rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty good, but not overwhelmingly excellent. However, it currently holds a 96% audience score there, which is obviously very high. So we have a divergence of pretty good critical reviews, but overwhelmingly good audience reviews. And personally, I definitely side more with the audience reviews than with the critics on this. While it does have a few flaws, and I think a few things could have been done a little bit better, or a few things could have been added to the film to make it even a bit better. Overall, I think this was a very good and important film, both in its craft and quality from a technical standpoint, and as a rare example of a major Hollywood film that has a negative portrayal of the FBI as well as the media. But even though it's a high-quality film, with some very big names involved, both in front of and behind the camera, the film, can't remember if I mentioned this before or not, directed by Clint Eastwood. And even though it got mostly positive reviews from critics and overwhelmingly positive reviews from regular folks who've seen it, the film has been a financial flop. With a budget of $45 million, so far, 
according to what I saw online, it's only made a bit less than half that amount at the box office. So what's going on? What's the explanation? Well, partly I think that this isn't the kind of movie that's likely to make giant box office dough. It's only got one explosion, and that's near the beginning of the film. It doesn't have lots of wild action or fight scenes or whatever. It's not a Michael Bay explosion film. It's not an Avengers film. And the only sex in it is implied and doesn't happen on screen. So it's not, you know, Game of Thrones or something. Instead, it's an historical drama film without a lot of action other than the bombing scene early in the film. And it's more about a combination of character and kind of big social criticism type themes critiquing major institutions, namely the media and law enforcement, particularly the FBI. That sort of movie does not often make big bucks, even if there is a big media buzz about it being great. And in the case of this film, the mainstream corporate media has largely attacked it. Surprise, surprise, given the fact that this film puts them in a very negative light. Now, as you may or may not have heard, much of the criticism from the media against this film has focused on one particular detail, and that is the film's portrayal of Kathy Scruggs using sex to get her scoop from Agent Shaw. Now, Scruggs is not alive to comment on this. She apparently had issues ever after, I don't know if she had issues before as well, but at least after this whole thing happened and once the truth came out reflected negatively on her as a journalist, she apparently had issues. And she died in 2001 at the age of just 42 of a drug overdose. And according to what I could find online, medical examiners were not able to determine whether this overdose was accidental or was deliberate suicide. From what I've been able to glean, Scruggs was an attractive lady who had a very kind of large personality and was an aggressive reporter. But I've come across no hard evidence that she was known to have used sex to get info on the Richard Jewell case. And this has been the centerpiece of the media's attack on the film is, look, they're, you know, ruining this woman's reputation by depicting this as having happened, and we don't know that this happened. So fair enough. That said, even if the sexual quid pro quo angle is totally fabricated and, and you know, nothing like that actually happened, I still think that Shrugs behaved, at the very least, you know, basically acting like the FBI had all but convicted the guy when in fact he hadn't even been arrested. And of course, whoever at the FBI leaked the information to her also behaved very unethically as well. That information should not have been made public that early on into the investigation when they had no idea if there was anything to the theory of Jewel as the bomber or not. Now, right off the bat, I, I don't claim to be an expert in all the nitty-gritty details of this particular story. I've not had the time nor the inclination to look into this story, for example, the way I've dug into the Civil War or Woodrow Wilson or any of the other historical topics on which I've done giant, multi-episode deep dives. So it's entirely possible that there are aspects of this that I could be wrong about, or there could be some info out there I've not come across in the rather modest amount of research I did for this review, which basically consisted of reading a handful of articles and watching a few different videos online. With that caveat out of the way, though, here's what I'll say about this controversy over the portrayal of Scruggs and how the media has responded to it. First off, as far as I know, none of the sources that the screenwriter consulted for writing this film alleged the sexual quid pro quo between Scruggs and any real-life FBI agents. 
Therefore, that means the screenwriter decided to put that in there. Now, here's my best guess as to why that decision was made. Again, as far as I know, we don't know. As far as I know, to this day, we don't know the exact details of who from the FBI specifically leaked the jewel scoop to Scruggs and under what specific circumstances that happened. So that's a blank spot in the story, so to speak. But the screenwriter probably felt like he couldn't just leave that detail of the story out of the film, that it was too important to telling the story, that you have to have some sort of depiction of how that must have come about, or even if it's theoretical, some sort of a portrayal in the film of the leak taking place. You couldn't just leave that blank and never fill it in in any way in the film. Therefore, my theory goes, the screenwriter had to come up with a story as to how this would have happened that would be plausible, even if not known to be true, but that would also be entertaining. And after all, this is a Hollywood movie. And as I've mentioned both on my own show when reviewing films, and as a guest on other shows when discussing quote-unquote historical feature films, Hollywood pretty much always needs to fuck with the facts at least a little bit. It's a seemingly compulsive behavior on their part. And sometimes it's in ways that at least benefit the film from an interestingness point of view. Sometimes it doesn't even do that, and just you're like, why did you wreck that story and it doesn't even make the story any more interesting than the real version? But anyway, looking at showbiz, you know, Hollywood and the big TV entities, HBO and whoever, the two ways that showbiz always likes to juice up a story whether it's a fictional story or an allegedly based-on-a-true-story story, story, are through sex and through action-slash-violence. Those are the favorite things. Insert or magnify one or both of those elements. That's like plan A. So, I think the screenwriter probably mostly chose to put in the sexual quid pro quo element as a way to add some sexual juice to the film, which otherwise doesn't have any. And it wasn't the sort of blank in the story that could be filled in with an action scene or a fight scene or violence or CGI special effects. But it is a seeming blank in the story, you know, the blank being who exactly leaked the story to Scruggs and under what circumstances, that while you couldn't plausibly fill it with a giant fight scene or a car chase, but it could plausibly be filled in with some sexual innuendo. And the fact that you had a good-looking, fairly young, and very career-aggressive female reporter makes it, despite how the media is acting all butthurt about it now, at least a plausible explanation that this may potentially have been how the leak came about. Secondarily, the screenwriter and others involved in making the film may have also been trying to make some sort of a metaphorical or allegorical point about journalists prostituting themselves for their careers you know, for the sake of getting a good story and advancing their career. But I think the primary thing was just, well, there's a blank spot in the story. Let's insert either sex or violence. Well, violence wouldn't work, so sex. And of course, in real life, the corporate media always try to portray themselves as heroes and victims, or even heroes and victims simultaneously, never in any way as villains. They always want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Just look at how butthurt they get when Trump, you know, just verbally attacks them, either in speech or on Twitter. 
He says some negative things about the media, and they clutch their pearls and bleat and act like this is the worst atrocity ever. And yet at the same time, Trump can be an accessory to genociding Yemen and contribute to slaughtering children there and in various other places. And the media doesn't give two flying fucks. I mean, hell, the American media almost never criticizes Saudi Arabia for all of the horrible things that government does. With the only exception I know of in recent memory being the killing of the journalist Khashoggi. So, you know, as far as the American corporate media is concerned, the Saudis can do horrible shit 24-7, 365. But let them kill one person that the media regards as one of theirs. And all of a sudden, for a very brief amount of time, by the way, the Saudis are depicted as bad. So, it is entirely predictable, I think, that the media would take this entire movie, much of which is an indictment against them as well as the FBI, and focus on this one detail and act like this completely discredits the film. Basically, pay no attention to the mountain of accurately portrayed stuff about how badly the media and FBI acted in this case. The only thing we need to focus on is that the film took some liberties with the known facts in regard to its portrayal of the reporter using sex to get a scoop. So, they're distracting you, with one relatively minor detail being possibly, maybe even likely, a fabrication, but who knows, may have some truth to it. Made up by the writers, though at least possible, but not a verified fact. And sort of like a magician, you know, doing something fancy with one hand to distract you. You focus on this question, on this controversy, and you completely forget about the larger points of the film. And all of the many, many things, it does get pretty much factually dead on in telling the story. Which is, in fact, most of the major points of the film, as far as I'm aware, other than this sexual aspect to how the leak happened. In a way, it's almost like the media is kind of doing a limited hangout, where it's like, hey, yeah, let's focus on this one thing over here, and then, by default, you're causing everyone to miss all of the troubling things that are accurately shown in this film regarding the media and the FBI. Now, let me say this, though. I think the writer and the filmmakers involved in making this movie actually made a tactical error by going with the sexual angle on depicting the leak. I think they should have realized ahead of time how putting something like that into the film that's not a verified fact would give the corporate media something they could work with, something they could seize on, a little detail that's not factually accurate, that they could then use to try and discredit the film as a whole and distract from the larger points of the film, which, again, are mostly quite valid. Now, Whether the film would have done better with or without this particular controversy, I have no idea. But, this is a good illustration of why. When you're working on reconstructing and portraying something historical, whether you're doing it in a film, or a book, or a podcast, or any other media, you really should carefully stick to the facts. Because, if it's something controversial that's likely to kick up a lot of criticism... If your critics can find some little factual error or fabrication or bad connecting of dots in your work, they can and will use that to try and 
discredit everything you've done and try to distract from all the things you've gotten right. You know, it's like, could I have made my Woodrow Wilson series way more juicy and appealing and maybe even gotten way more downloads if I went ahead and ran with the story that like, oh yeah, Woodrow Wilson and Mrs. Peck, they were going at it. And I'm like making up all kinds of stories and details and like, yep, here's them in letters to each other talking about what positions they were using and, you know, going in and like, but it's made up. Instead, what did I do? Well, you know, maybe it's not quite as interesting, but I said, look, here's what we know. Here's what a few Wilson biographers think about it. Here's my overall take, but at the end of the day, we don't know. And that's how I dealt with a blank. Now, I understand that what I'm doing is different than what a feature film is doing in terms of, you know, the exact methods of storytelling used. And so perhaps it's easier for me to point out a blank and admit it's a blank in a story than it is for a feature film. Nonetheless, I I still feel like they could have done something to deal with that in a way that wouldn't have provided the in, you know, the opportunity for the corporate press to try to discredit the entire film. Or alternatively, if they just couldn't resist the urge to have to fill in that blank of how the leak happened with something sexual in order to juice the thing up Hollywood style, if they were still going to go with that angle, they should have, I think, then changed the name of Scruggs's character to something fictional, maybe make her an amalgamation type character like Agent Shaw apparently is. And then they could have better been able to use the defense of, hey, this is overall closely based on true events, but a few things have been added and changed and names and characters mushed around into a feature film to make it fit that format better and make it more entertaining, etc. So they could use that more effectively as they're, as they're out for like, hey, yeah, this is, few details are not factually accurate. We did it to try to fill in the story the best we could. So, While I can't stand the media's drama queen, pearl-clutching critiques of this film, and I think the film gets way more right than it does wrong, I still think the filmmakers made an error by putting this element into the story that's not fully verified and factual and thus gives potential enemies of the film, which the filmmakers, I think, should have assumed the present-day corporate media would be automatically, that gives them something to work with when trying to bash and discredit and marginalize the film. That said, overall, I still like the film very much, and I think it's very important, and it's a well-done movie, and it's worth seeing. I'll also point out that the few historical inaccuracies and licenses and things that the film does take with the facts are positively minuscule compared to all the types of inaccuracies, licenses, fabrications, and sometimes flat-out lies that are rife in almost all major Hollywood movies, dealing with supposed true stories that relate to topics including war, the military, the FBI, and or the CIA in any way. I mean, just, you know, one example, Zero Dark Thirty, is very full of shit. But, you know, you can check out the work of somebody like Tom Secker at spyculture.com to find much more examples of allegedly historically based on true events, you know, movie and TV productions that deal with things like war, the CIA and the FBI that are just full of shit. And the American corporate media rarely makes a big deal out of the inaccuracies in those movies, because those movies are supportive of establishment institutions and not critical of them. 
So, wrapping up with my big picture take on the film. What can we say about this movie itself and about its reception and box office performance and the way the corporate media has dealt with the film? First, it is a very rare film that shows the FBI in a bad light. That almost never happens in Hollywood films. In this film, we see the FBI agents, particularly John Hamm's agent Shaw, as deeply flawed people with their own self-interest who are, at best, imperfect and prone to abusing their power. And with Ham's character, it's particularly powerful because, of course, John Ham is this super handsome, square-jawed, deep-voiced, seeming all-American hero. And yet he's ultimately shown to be a complete asshole. By the way, just as a side note, I do want to mention, I understand, I find it entirely understandable and reasonable, given the circumstances at the time, that the FBI would have at least considered the possibility that Jewel might be the bomber and would look into that. And I say that as no fan of the FBI, to put it mildly. But I understand, given the circumstances at the time, that's a possibility they should have at least looked into. But, that said, the fact that someone at the FBI leaked it to the press very prematurely, when they didn't have anything other than a vague profile and no real evidence, and then the fact that the FBI tried to take advantage of Jewel being, well, a bit slow and naive and worshipful of law enforcement, and tried to trick him under false pretenses into waiving his rights and saying something stupid, and the fact that they kept digging into Jewel and his family and friends long after it really should have been obvious he wasn't the guy. All that and then some in this film shows the FBI being the power-abusing assholes that they so frequently are. I'll also say that it's refreshing and always quite rare in a big-budget Hollywood film for the mainstream media to be portrayed as being as full of shit and nefarious and as in bed with the government as they in fact usually are. So that's refreshing. So I think this is a very well-done movie that, despite the controversy, is still very much worth seeing and does an important service. I think we need a lot more films that depict the FBI, CIA, and other institutions and agencies way more accurately, which in my opinion is much more negatively and cynically, and that also do the same to the mainstream media. If anything, the Richard Jewell case is relatively mild in terms of the nefariousness of the FBI compared to what they did with COINTELPRO, or compared with how they and other government agencies handled things like Waco and Ruby Ridge. I mean, at least in this case... Neither Jewel, nor his mother, nor his friend that they were accusing of being his accomplice were killed or maimed by government agents, and while they did go through a very rough time, he was eventually exonerated and he never saw the inside of a prison cell. So, while this is great that they're showing this malpractice, I think it'd be even greater if we got some high-quality films showing, I don't know, some of the darker aspects of the FBI's COINTELPRO operations. Or dealing with some of the nastier things the CIA has done. By the way, in that vein, I want to briefly mention and highly recommend something else I watched recently that I don't think I'll have time to do a detailed review on. But it's the 2019 Amazon film The Report, which stars Adam Driver and which also coincidentally has John Hamm in it. If you're a fan of accurate history that reveals and depicts some of the darkest things that government agencies can get up to, then this one is for you. It deals with the Senate's investigation of the CIA's post-9-11 torture program, and it's even more highly recommended by me than Richard Jewell. 
I think Richard Jewell is probably a more entertaining film, but as far as I'm aware, the report is even more historically accurate, and the government misbehavior that it shows is far more sinister than what happened in the Jewell case. So I just want to recommend that. If you've got Amazon Prime, as of this recording, at least it's available streaming there. So the report, highly recommended. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope your 2020 is off to a decent enough start. I hope mine improves soon. I've been sick for all of 2020 so far, and my voice is about to go, so I better cut this episode off soon. But I just want to say, fingers crossed, hopefully full-on war with Iran won't break out in the near future. But of course, you never can tell. So do your best to stay safe and stay sane. And I'll see you on the next Dangerous History Podcast episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. 
Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.